This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. Uh, and I'm going to, can I get a little bit into the weeds here? A little I won't bit. Go, I won't get too into That's the weeds. That's a different podcast, but go ahead. Okay. Um... Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, and we have the full cast of The Weeds with us oh my this God. week. It's a miracle. Ezra wow. Klein, Sarah Cliff, the whole gang is here for one week only. We have one chair here for Elijah. Yes. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good Passover reference, Ezra. Yeah, timely, right? Passover <laughs> <laughs> coming up soon. No, it's Rosh Hashanah is the next one. Yeah, yeah. that's going to be a good one. Yeah. Russia's shown a special issue. So um, parenthesis, 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 the weeds. <laughs> close parenthesis, <laughs> close parenthesis, close parenthesis. Ah, uh, yes. Um, that you should look up the echo explainer on Vox.com if you if you don't know what that parenthesis business is about. Um, and and also, really, if you don't know, maybe you're not meant to know. Um, you know, we got a great show. We got we got three people in the studio. We've got two topics. It's it's going to be amazing. And in particular, with with Sarah back, uh, we are able to at long last discuss the uh, pending collapse of the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, I went to upstate New York for a week, and then Obamacare collapsed. in, in my absence, I hadn't realized Washington. quite how much of this was riding on your shoulders. The the collapse. Oh, the, the law. DC. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, is it like, that it's riding like on Sarah's shoulders, or is it just that? Upstate New York, bad things happen when people go there. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, it's one. kind of like Stranger Things looks like it takes place up there. So um, what is happening with Obamacare, What is Sarah? happening with Obamacare? So Obamacare, so I would say I don't think Obamacare is in collapse right now. Um, I wrote a long piece for Vox.com about it this week, which you can read on our excellent website. What is it called? It is called, Is Obamacare Failing? The answer is no. The answer is kind of. shruggy. <laughs> if you know the internet shruggy, it's kind of Some like parts that. are failing. So yeah, so let's talk through what is going on in Obamacare. So what is definitely happening in Obamacare is we are seeing large insurance companies leave the marketplace. They have lost money. They've decided this is not a good investment. And it's really hard to see the path in which they eventually decide to come back. I don't see a strong argument that there are certain changes that would be made that would woo these people back into the marketplaces. So we're seeing a very uncompetitive marketplace. We actually put out analysis today um, showing that one in four counties on healthcare.gov will have just one issuer next year. So there will not be choice for a lot of people. Uh, we how, also How many have more than four? Or three. More than how, how many three, have a real competitive? Yeah, market? more than three is. Oh gosh, I'm gonna have to look this up. It's on Vox.com. But it, oh, I think it's 44 percent. It's the lowest of all four years. The marketplaces. So you basically what you see in the, the story of the marketplaces right now is you have a few insurers jump in in 2014. The number grows in 2015 and 2016, and then it just look, looks very set to drop off in 2017. So you're just seeing a real. Lack of choice. You have one county in Arizona that's especially worrisome where no plans want to sell next year. Um, they'll likely cajole someone into doing it. It feels nice to have a monopoly market, so some insurer will probably come in. And it's raising questions about can the fundamental structure of Obamacare, can this competitive market it was meant to set up to let people shop for insurance that would, you know, the theory went back in the early 2010s that this would attract employers who'd be sick of providing insurance, who'd be sick of paying these big insurance bills, that they would move their workers onto the marketplaces. And ultimately, you'd see employer-sponsored insurance erode, and these marketplaces would be how all of us get our health insurance in the future. And right now, so what I think is happening is you're not seeing that policy vision 
come true. I, I don't think that means the collapse of Obamacare. There are other parts. The law is still expanding coverage to about 20 million people. Like that is I think it's hard to say Obamacare is just flat out failing when so many more people have insurance than did before. But there's a policy vision in Obamacare that looks like it is being very seriously tested and very much on the path to failure. But can we can we look at a, something in the, in the middle distance here that I was reading your article and I hadn't really understood before, which was uh, when when this was being conceptualized, there was a lot of talk about the individual mandate. Mm-hmm. There was a really big piece of litigation around the individual mandate. There were some overheated rhetoric, uh, one might say, about America's descent into a Stalinistic tyranny. Um, and then there was also a, a, a liberal rhetoric that, you know, like without this individual mandate, like the whole thing would collapse. But the striking thing that, that I saw in your story is that you know, there are just lots of people who uh, don't have health insurance through their employers mm-hmm. and who um, aren't that poor. And so they don't get enormous mm-hmm. subsidies from the program and aren't that sick. So they don't have like a dire need of health insurance and they are just not buying health insurance. That's one reason the market is not that attractive, right? I mean, yeah. you would you would love as part of the idea was that as an insurance company, right? If you got into the market in Montana, there would be some number of people in Montana who are like not that sick and, and who the government is telling them, "Well, you got to go buy a health insurance plan." So you'd be like, "Yeah, I'll I'll sell that to you." But people just just aren't doing it. So, uh, I want to make a very a, a really important linguistic point here because I think it really screws up how we talk about Obamacare. We talk about Obamacare in the singular and it's plural. So uh, we say, how is Obamacare failing or the market or the marketplaces? But what you have, uh, Obamacare is a, this program. It has a lot of different parts, including Medicaid, which is responsible for a massive amount of the coverage expansion and is going aside from the Supreme Court, uh, right. making it optional for states to participate mm-hmm. in the states that are participating. We're seeing higher sign up than we expect. The Medicaid expansion right. is going great. And then you have these insurance marketplaces, and they aren't just state by state. They're county by county. And so one thing that I think is really difficult when we talk about this, and even when we talk about how a program like the individual mandate is working, it's really difficult to hold in our heads, I think, the thought that it is working really well in some places and not in others. That There are a bunch of counties in the country where you have many insurers competing, four or more. And then there's, some, there's one county where right now we have zero. And one thing you're seeing, I think, is a replication of old problems in, in the individual market that we'd hoped Obamacare would solve, but that it is in some ways falling prey to. Rural areas with folks in poor health are not a great insurance business. Yeah, like I think a great example of this is like we zeroed in in our piece on Texas, where you have, I think it's, if I'm getting, I don't know if I'm getting the number exactly right, it's about 170 very rural counties that have just one carrier. So if you live in one of those places, like you don't have a choice, you're probably just going to have to sign up for some version of the Blue Cross Blue Shield plan. But then if you live in like San Antonio or Dallas, you have like six choices. And it Mm -hmm. seems like the marketplace is incredibly competitive there. So I think, you know, that's an important point that you're making, Ezra, that I might drill into a slightly different way. It doesn't seem that 
Obamacare created these problems with a lack of competition. It's not right. like Obamacare launched and then all these insurers just like fleed central Texas because like there weren't <laughs> because like there were too many regulations or whatever. I think a more accurate telling of what happened is Obamacare launched. A handful of insurers said, oh, look at this new marketplace. Like maybe we'll try like maybe rural Texas can work for us now. They tried it for three years. They lost money. The individual mandate wasn't as strong as they wanted. They mostly had more sick people signing up than they thought. And now as we get into year four of the marketplace, they're saying, you know, we tested it out. We don't think, you know, we don't think it's going to work for us business-wise. So it just retreats back to where we were before Obamacare. So to summarize one point, though, that I think is embedded, because I just want to use it as a framing point. There are two things happening here, and they're different. And and you can tell me, Sarah, if you think this is a a fair summary of your piece, and, and, and people should read this piece. Obamacare is succeeding as a safety net program and failing as a reform of the American healthcare system. There were kind of two ideas behind. I mean, there are many ideas behind Obamacare, but just talking about coverage for a minute, not the payment reform stuff. Two things that were happening was on the one hand, there was a pretty straightforward approach to giving people health care insurance, which was we are going to either pay pay for it for them uh, through Medicaid or give them a tax subsidy to get it on the market. Or we were also going to use these markets with regulations and stuff to make it more affordable even for people who didn't need the subsidies. That was the hope and, and the theory. And the idea was that if that worked, that was going to grow. You used to hear Obamacare talked about as a platform, a first mm-hmm. step, a beginning, a model, a, you know, the, uh, a transition to a new system. The idea was that maybe big employers would eventually join the marketplaces, that smaller employers who using the shop marketplaces would join in. And back then, the big concern was that these would all be so attractive that employers would begin dumping into the marketplaces, that they'd be pushing people off of employer-sponsored insurance, push them into the marketplaces because they would just make sense and employees would like it and taxpayers would be paying for it. And, and, and there are all these reasons. That didn't happen. But, but I do think these are two things we have to keep separate. On the one hand, as there as says, like it is increasing coverage by quite a bit. On the other hand, what is not happening is that Obamacare is looking like a model that we are going – Obamacare's marketplaces are looking like the model of the competitive, private-driven, government-regulated, <laughs> uniquely American hybrid healthcare system that health wonks were hoping. Yeah, and I think that's what makes it – when you kind of like explore the question, is Obamacare – failing. Like the question is, well, what is your metric? Like what counts as success for you? And I know there's a lot of people, you know, I talk to on the left who are like, how could you say a program is failing when the uninsured rate is, you know, at the lowest point in decades? Like, of course, you know, yeah, there are some problems here and there, you know, it's it's working. And I think they're talking about the coverage expansion side. And then you have critics and, you know, I think some supporters of Obamacare who say like, this is not doing what it was supposed to do. It's not expanding coverage in the way we expected. It's not changing the American healthcare system in the way that we expected. And like, I think those are both valid answers to the question, is Obamacare failing? And like you said, like they're two, they're two separate questions to ask about the, about the law that, you know, both are important, both, both matter. Um, I think if you talk to Obamacare supporters, they generally care more about the question of is it expanding coverage than is it, um, you know, reforming the insurance market. I think, you know, a lot of people who support Obamacare, their main goal was to get more people insured and they're achieving that goal. So they kind of feel like they at least like hit like the kind of bare minimum. But then I think if you talk to like the health want class or, you know, those who like really expected the marketplaces to exchange. Like there's definitely some frustration with the fact that these are not working out as expected. Well, and I, to, to be a, a little bit more critical uh, on this, right, there was a, 
there was a, a sort of a, a decision matrix, you know, in 2007, 2008, 2009, around like, what are we going to do, right? And a lot of people, you know, members of Congress, interest groups who ultimately like backed the Affordable Care Act, it may not have been there, you know, in their heart of hearts, like this is what I want to throw all our political capital into. There were people who wanted to move more aggressively on immigration reform. There were people who wanted to move more aggressively on climate change. There were people who wanted more focus on the short-term economic situation. And so the, the sell of the Affordable Care Act was on one level, like this is a program that will help people and make America better. But on a, on a second level, it was like, this is a really big deal. This is like a transformative measure that deserves priority over other kinds of problems. And I think that if you sort of rolled the tape back and framed the proposal as instead of tackling a comprehensive climate change bill, we should um, do a Medicaid expansion and increase, create some tax credits for, for low-wage workers, that that would have been a different kind of pitch from the pitch that it was going to fix the healthcare problem in America, right? The the idea that, that the Affordable Care Act was intended to be this like clever thing that was going to be minimally disruptive to the employed insured majority, but that was also going to set the country on a kind of a glide path to this new system over the longer term. And to the extent that it doesn't seem to be putting us on that glide path, it seems to have maintained a fragmented system between public sector safety net programs for low-income people, uh, uh, Medicare for retirees, and then the sort of mainstream middle-class mm -hmm. employer-based coverage. That's fine. You know, I mean, like, it's it's great for the people who now have coverage and who didn't. It didn't disrupt the employer market, which was a, a politically pragmatic objective. But it also makes the whole thing um, much more banal mm -hmm. than it was sort of hoped for. And it's like, well, like, you could have spent that money on a gigantic EITC expansion. You could have spent that money on a pre-K program. You know, if you haven't actually transformed the fundamentals of the healthcare system, then I think you really have, like, failed on an important level, even if it's still true that people have been helped and repealing the law would only hurt those people. The, the objectives, like, really were a lot higher than this. I do think the objectives are very high. I, I Though the one place I think I would part from that analysis is that I'm not sure the argument about systematic transformation was as much about the insurance market fragmentation as you're making it to be. So there were, I, I remember writing a lot about this at the time. One of my big critiques of Obamacare, which now seems a little bit quaint, was that it was underpowered in terms of that kind of movement, which is what I wanted. So for instance, the marketplaces cannot absorb large insurers. Right. They couldn't do it at all until I believe it's 2017 or 2018. Yeah, I think that's right. And only then if a state certifies it. So I was like a big fan of national marketplaces and I wanted something bigger. So Obamacare was never very well built for that glide path. It seemed possible, but it, it, it was also designed. The the argument that was being made then, the, the place where I would describe it differently than you did, was it was an argument about long-term deficits. Insofar as the Obama administration was making a transform the country's long-term health argument, it was the bend the cost curve argument. Two things are happening there that are interesting, and I'm not sure I'd really give too much credit to Obamacare in it, but we are seeing much lower 
national healthcare costs, healthcare spending growth than we had in recent years. Now it's reaccelerating a little bit, but not back up to former trend lines. And Obamacare does have all of these payment reform things that are moving in through the Medicare system right now. I don't feel that I have a good global sense of how well they're working. Sarah, maybe you have one better than I do. But that feels to me more like the test of that dimension of it. That when Obama was coming out and saying, we're going to bend the cost curve, and Peter Orzag was coming out and saying, we're going to bend the cost curve, and all these folks were coming out and saying, we're going to bend the cost curve, that the argument wasn't that the marketplaces would replace the employer-based market. It was that we were going to manage some pay-for-value away from fee-for-service transition that was going to change everything. And then weirdly, costs dropped. And so a bunch of the interesting and somewhat promising proposals like the Independent Payment Advisory Board and Medicare, to some degree like the excise tax, both became – because they began feeling less necessary to people because that deficit panic that was context for Obamacare ended, they have also become things people are more comfortable opposing or delaying. You've seen a a move in the Democratic Party that we've talked about before against the excise tax. So I actually think it might end up failing to put those cost controls in play, but not because the costs aren't coming down, but because it is. If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors or sweeteners. So you can feel OK about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. They got great apples. They got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzely things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com weeds. So you go to naturebox.com weeds. Uh, that way we get credit, you get 50% off your first order. naturebox.com weeds. Right now in health policy circles, you know, I see a lot of debate about, you know, should they just, should Congress have just expanded Medicaid? Like this would have been, it was never really discussed as far as I can remember. Like maybe there were some kind of like really far, like the very liberal wing of Democrats, I think might have been interested in that approach. But there's a lot of, oh, this is what Democrats should have done in 2010. Um, you know, I was actually talking with Margo Singer-Katz, a very smart healthcare correspondent at The Times about this on Twitter this morning. And I think, you know, there's a difference between like should have and like could have. Yes, um, I also think that's a big difference there. (laughs) It's definitely true. We know Medicaid works. Like if you give people insurance coverage, they will have like if you mail people insurance cards, um, it's actually harder than you think to get people to sign up. Like you won't get 100 percent participation. But we know how to expand insurance in the United States. Like we did it in 1965. We got over 100 million people signed up. Like that's not a hard task. Um, But it was never really on the table. I think that speaks to like what Matt was saying. Like it was didn't feel possible to get enough political momentum behind like a massive Medicaid expansion. Like that was never thought of. And, you know, I think some of it is, you know, we saw this new shiny object that was the marketplaces. 
And you know, I think also partially def- in the media coverage, there's just less coverage of Medicaid. Like people didn't mm-hmm. talk as much about Medicaid, even though it was expanding coverage just as much as the marketplaces. And it kind of, you know, it wasn't new. It wasn't didn't seem that interesting. I actually have a very clear memory of um, when the Supreme Court decision on Medicaid came out and like everyone's running around the newsroom about the individual mandate. And like, I don't if you look back at news articles that day, I don't think the Medicaid ruling like even made the lead of most stories, even though it turned out to be the most consequential by far. Um, so I think, you know, we knew Medicaid worked when we went into the ACA and Medicaid is continuing to work. And like one of the things you're starting to see now in the marketplaces is um, like the phrase that um, a former Obama administration official gave me. You're seeing the Medicaidization of the marketplaces where the plans that are there are plans that are succeeding. There are plans that are profitable in the marketplaces. And these are generally companies that have worked with states to manage their Medicaid program. So these are probably not companies you've heard of or get your insurance through at work. They're um, companies like called Centene and Molina. And what they have done historically is managed health insurance programs for low income people. And they're expanding. They're getting bigger. They're like going all in on the Medicaid uh, on the exchanges. And I think what you're seeing now in the marketplaces is, you know, mostly these kind of skimpy plans that don't cover a lot of doctors. They have like a pretty narrow network. Um, They, you know, you're not going to have your choice of doctors that you would in an employer plan. But you also have a doctor. You also have coverage that gets you in the door at the doctor. And I think there's definitely like a revisionist. Well, you know, if these plans just look like Medicaid, why didn't we just expand Medicaid in the first place without this complex new marketplace that isn't doing the thing we wanted it to? But you know, could have and should have are two very different questions. But, but, but this is this is what I mean. I mean, arguments where everyone is sort of saying the same thing are, are a little boring. Uh, but I, but I do want to like weeds. reiterate <laughs> the my weeds like my, my negative gloss on this because like what Ezra said, like you're right. When you delved into the weeds, the the details of what was actually coming out of the Senate at the end of the process, it was already pretty clear that between the limits that were placed on the exchanges, uh, between the um, fear of employer dumping, the relatively light penalties Mm -hmm. for violating the mandate, that like a lot of this transformative potential had actually been leached out of the legislation. And also that to keep the headline costs down, right? As they went through repeated iterations of the bill, the Medicaid expansion started getting bigger uh, because it was a cheaper way to meet the the coverage goals. So if you completely ignored the three years of debate and just read the text of the bill that came on Obama's desk, I think you could have predicted that you would get an outcome sort of similar to the outcome that that we have reached. And I think that if you look back at the coverage, that was implicit in, in a lot of that. People, you know, people didn't miss it, right? Like the reporters were saying like, oh, they've made Medicaid a much bigger deal. Oh, they've watered down the individual mandate a lot. Like, oh, Ron Wyden is complaining that they're not letting enough people into the exchanges. But if you tell the like the big political story, like why is it that Obama didn't say Hey, Congress, I want you to expand Medicaid like this much. Sorry, I was making a big gesture with my hand. (laughs) And then moderate Democrats like make him expand Medicaid a little bit less. The reason that that's not the debate that we had is that people had gotten excited like years earlier in in the mid aughts about this transformative vision of American healthcare, right? That in its like very initial like think tank white paper reforms would have been 
a really radical overhaul in which like everyone loses yeah, their health the, insurance. There's a version of this, the the Wyden Bennett proposal. Right. The B side of Obamacare. The B side of Obamacare that had these state markets. I mean, I think it was actually state markets in that one, not county level markets, although who knows how an actual drafting process would have taken that. But it folded the entire employer market into them. And if I'm not wrong, in the early versions, folded Medicaid in as yeah. well. Yeah. And like that was like that was the maximal version of this. Exactly. Idea. That was like that was like the true believer. Yes. Yeah. You know, that was like like before you went with the major labels. Right. Like, this version is like the, of the hipster vision. before Obamacare right. sold out. And to me, to an extent, the pristine ideological vision of Wyden Bennett continued to motivate people even as the like realities of dealing with like what people actually wanted from the system kept kind of whittling it away and so you wind up with an outcome that falls far short of what people Wait, uh, had set forward. out to do relative to a an alternate history in which the energy, the intellectual and emotional energy had just come from like Medicaid expansion advocates. So I want to disagree with one thing you said there, um, that, since disagreement is more fun. Um, the idea that like if this bill, if you looked at the bill that landed on Obama's desk, you could essentially predict the demise of the marketplaces. And I actually place more. They're not demising. Sorry. Not demise. Sorry. <laughs> the, um, the lack of competition. There are some marketplaces some. doing okay, poorly. Yes. Okay. The lack of competition in some marketplaces, which is less exciting. I actually, I put a little more um, kind of fault at the Obama administration here, where I think there are some things that happened in the past four years that, um, you know, that I think the marketplaces had a tough path to go on and these things only made it harder. One is just the launch of the marketplaces that in healthcare.gov, as is no surprise to anyone who listens to the weeds, the launch of healthcare.gov in 2014 was just a spectacular mess. Nobody could sign up. And I think that kind of gave employers pause where they, you know, were interested, were thinking about it. And then they saw this like mess of a launch and we're just like, we're not going to send our employees to do that. Like they're going to hate us. They're going to go to our competitors if we choose that as our shopping mechanism. And so I think you have kind of that botched launch. And then, you know, coming back to the individual mandate, there are some policies that decisions the administration has made to do somewhat lacks enforcement of the mandate. And I think there are political reasons they did this. You know, you don't want stories about people being harassed out of, you know, getting their fees or those sort of things. But they have, for example, been very generous in special enrollment periods where I'll give you guys an example of this. Up until I think just a few months ago, there are these like eight special enrollment periods where if you have a baby or if you move or you lose insurance, you're allowed to sign up. Up until a few months ago, you didn't need to show proof that you had moved. You just had to say, hey, I just moved to the state. Can I have insurance now? And insurers would have to enroll you, which is a great loophole to take advantage of if you get sick and want insurance. So they just changed that. I think it was either this year or a few months ago where you have to actually show proof that you moved states. Um, and there, there are these decisions that kind of made the mandate more politically palatable, but also have this effect of making the marketplace harder for um, for insurers. I was actually, I was talking to um, Uwe Reinhardt, a, a health economist at Princeton who studies international systems. And, and he like really drove home to me like how punitive international um, mandates are. In Switzerland, for example, if you don't have insurance, they can throw you in jail. They can garnish your wages. They can charge you a fee that's 50% more than the actual price of insurance. Like the Swiss are not fucking around well, the with the mandates. politics here are worth dwelling on, right? Because it's yeah. like right. if one yeah. person was thrown in jail for violating the yeah. Obamacare mandate, it would have been it would have been dominant media story for like a week. And if Obama had 
stood firm on that and been like, this guy deserves to rot in jail, <laughs> everyone would have heard about it, yes. right? And like signed up for their help. Right. I mean, the, the Democrats spent like all of 2010 batting back rumors that the IRS was like buying guns to enforce the mandate. So anyways, you know, I think there are certain parts of the marketplace that were you can kind of see in the law. There are also decisions and actions the administration has taken that I think set the marketplaces up for a tougher experience, especially in these rural areas. Let me talk about the flip of that, too, though, because I think it's really important. There have been a lot of decisions and changes not made. Uh, I I was hoping to get this piece done before I left on vacation, but uh, I will not. Instead, I will explain it on the weeds. But I want to write a piece called Obamacare and the Dangers of Non-Iterative Policymaking. Look, we launched you Vox. need a better title. No, that title's great. Everybody's <laughs> going to go viral. It. It's going to go viral. Um, we launched Vox two and a half years ago, a little bit less. And when we launched Vox, we had a theory about persistence in the news and card stacks. And, you yeah, know, it was we, wrong. And we were going to build these big knowledge bases. And it wasn't totally wrong, but it was it, as we moved. It had some flux. <laughs> as everything fractured into off platforms uh, and you can't run some of these bespoke products through them. We moved away from that theory. And it's and what we're doing now is working, thank God, but it's pretty different than what we launched doing. And we're a, you know, we're a 70 person organization, private, that can make a lot of big changes. And what we were doing wasn't that complicated from the outset. A healthcare, a national healthcare system trying to serve both Los Angeles County and the most rural county in Montana is really complicated. It's a really hard thing to do. And one problem with Obamacare is that Congress will not touch it. So we've been talking here about the individual mandate, and we've also been talking here about the Obamacare vision. But but something I want to be careful to say is it isn't clear to me that the vision has been – is not workable. What is clear to me is that nobody is trying to make it work. There's not a commitment to saying, OK, like here's what we wanted to do. Let's do what's necessary to make it work. So so back when Obamacare was passing, um, before it really got into the end game, when it got super bitter, I remember talking to a lot of healthcare wonks about the individual mandate, including in, in the Obama administration. And there was an argument even then that the individual mandate was too weak. I, I wrote a piece then, I think it was called The Best Deal in Obamacare. And the best deal in Obamacare is just to pay the individual mandate until you need health insurance. Right. Um, it's just not that, you know, you, you've got open enrollment issues, but because of the number of loopholes in them, you know, if you were smart about the law, it's not actually that hard to game. Or you can go to the hospital and get covered. Yeah, Even like there, we have laws that yeah. require hospitals to treat so, you. So, you know, I'm not saying I don't want to do that, right? I like to have health insurance. I like some of what you're buying there is peace of mind. But in a just coldly rational way, the numbers work out. Now, one thing people said is that, OK, well, look, if that proves to be the case, we can turn the dial on that. It's not difficult to move the individual mandate from costing, what is it, its max 2.5 percent of yeah. adjusted gross income up to 5 percent, up to 10 percent. I mean, you're just changing literally a digit in the law. But it's not going to happen. Nobody's going to touch it. And that is, I think, a big part of the story here. There's a lot of – in another way of thinking about what's happening here is that there is continuously information streaming back from Obamacare, market information coming back. And the market information is saying, here's what's happening in the cities. Here's what's happening in the rural areas. Here's what's happening in Alabama. Here's what's happening in California. And if you were a company – that was launching a product like this, you would use that to make decisions. You would use that to say, okay, we need to change the product a bit for this market. We need to change how we're selling it in that market. We need to, you know, we're finding that people over here don't like this aspect of it. And and so you change it. And 
In Obamacare, because the politics of it are so frozen, you can't change it. Now, now one argument you hear people make around this is this is why Obamacare never should have been passed, because you shouldn't pass anything this big unless it's bipartisan and people are committed to, to making it work. In a super divided era, I'm not a big fan of this argument, and I think you see why in No Child Left Behind, which did pass in a bipartisan way, and it took more than a decade till we could take a law that was clearly failing in big ways and actually open it back up and try to do what we always knew needed to be done and make it a lot more flexible. I think in a broad way, as Congress is getting more gridlocked and more paralyzed and more polarized, it is becoming much harder to do policymaking in an iterative way. And that is going to lead in a lot of different spaces to worse policy. So something like Obamacare, which I think it's not that hard to imagine what you would do to try to improve it. We are we have just absorbed the idea that we will do none of those things. Well, can and I say so, yeah, it's yeah. actually worse than that. Where we're doing Excellent. things. <laughs> where there are things that are happening that actively are undermining the law. Or like one big example of this that when I was reporting this piece about his Obamacare failing that just came up and up again, it was kind of a wonky thing that happened um, that Senator Marco Rubio led where there are these programs that are meant to stabilize the marketplace in the first three years. These are programs that show up in Medicaid Advantage, where basically they guarantee to insurers, like, look, the first three years are going to be hard. We will kind of create some, like, stops for, you know, how much profit you can have, also how many losses you can have. We can kind of, like, you know, give you a guarantee that as you work out your book of business in the first three years, like, you don't have to worry about this. And one of these programs was called Risk Corridors, which is one of the programs with the worst names in Obamacare that I avoided learning about for a long time. But it's actually pretty simple. It basically limits your your profits or your losses to about 3% on either side, saying you're not going to lose more than 3% or gain more. People who earn more transfer money to the people who lose more. Um, there was, gosh, I'm forgetting exactly when it happened, but there was a law that passed through the Senate, that, through Congress, that made this program budget neutral, that said you cannot pay out more to insurance companies than you take in. And this meant that this program basically only paid out 12% of what it was supposed to. And that was like a huge fucking deal for insurance companies who had basically set their prices expecting that this stopgap measure would be there. And then it it wasn't. And a lot of small insurance companies, especially these like co-op plans, just went out of business when they didn't get the money they were expecting. So it's not just that we're not doing iterative policymaking. We're like seeing what's wrong with Obamacare and like passing a law to like make the thing that's wrong with Obamacare <laughs> even worse with Obamacare. Um, I have one more question for you guys that I've been thinking about that I'd be curious to hear. So I'm curious, like, if we keep losing insurance companies, like if we end up with large parts of the company country that have one insurance plan, maybe zero insurance plans, um, what do Republicans do? Because you have, like, millions of people who have health insurance. Um, one thing you could do is just, like, let Obamacare go down in flames and say, I told you so. But, you That's know, the dream, right? Just, just living the dream. <laughs> It'd be a great story to cover, and I would cover it well. But I think we saw, like, during King versus Burwell, like— Republicans got in a really hard spot when there's the possibility that 8 million people lose insurance. Um, so I'm curious, like, what what they do if we end up in this situation that some are predicting of, like, no competition, skyrocketing premiums, the program gets super expensive. Like, what do you do if you're someone who opposes Obamacare at that point, opposes Obamacare, but has a lot of constituents signed up for Obamacare? I think you do... Nothing. I think. I think. I think the Burwell case. Touching my nose. I think the Burwell case. I believe that is on the nose. The Burwell case proved to be a real problem because you had a bunch of people in plans that were pretty good deals for them who were going to lose them all of a sudden. What I don't want to say it's happening, but the sort of like 
bad future for for the marketplaces is one that's very comfortable for the program's opponents because it's one where, you know, in 2016, people were getting a pretty good deal. In 2017, a somewhat smaller number of people are getting a somewhat worse deal. In 2018, the deal gets a little worse. The number of beneficiaries falls a little. As a Republican, you keep saying like, see, I said this wouldn't work. And but you, you focus on your- But one of the things that's hard here is the subsidies mean people aren't actually getting a worse deal. The government's getting like a shitty deal no. and paying a lot of money. But, but you know, right, individuals' but, premiums aren't going but, up. But if well, you're, but if they you're are. not that poor, they, they are going up. Most of, most of the- I think, people, but but yeah. but that's part of what I mean. It you know it windows away. I mean, maybe you cut it, maybe you don't. But I, I would say like one big thing to keep in mind is that just like I think many people in America, including most Republican members of Congress, are like not that focused on the specific question of do the working poor have high quality health insurance, and like so as long as their situation is like getting worse in a kind of gradualistic way. They're going to spend their time focusing on, like, the issues that they think are important, you know, on expanding offshore oil drilling or getting rid of the red tape that's preventing small businesses from accessing credit and, you know, uh, making it harder for people to buy lobster with food stamps. I mean, it, no, no, no. But, it, you know, it's just like to it clearly like expanding health insurance coverage is not like a top ideological priority for Republicans or for the conservative movement. If something cataclysmic occurs, you have to address it. But this just kind of like lingering shitty problems with a program they voted against, they're going to be like, well, you know, we told you this was a bad idea. So we're talking about there might be one county in Arizona that doesn't have an insurer right now, but we think we'll probably get one. So. I think for this to even rise to the level of something Republicans have to notice, you have to have something more like Texas has zero insurers anywhere in it. And nobody thinks right now that that will happen. So I, I think that's one dimension of it. The other dimension that I do think is important is what Republicans do really depends on who's president. In a world where Obamacare is struggling and Hillary Clinton is president, it's a cudgel. In a world where Obamacare is struggling and... Uh, Donald Trump's yeah, going to have Donald the best Trump. people working on this Donald problem. I'm, I'm thinking <laughs> forward here to 2020. Um, okay, John Kasich is president. It, where John Kasich is president. Uh, I think it becomes an issue, not just it is like a little bit of a problem for Republicans because people vote based on how their life is going. They don't really go back and do retroactive evaluations of who they blame for policy failures, but also because a Republican could potentially take credit for improving it. And I actually think that's important. I mean, you do have a lot of examples going back to Medicare Part D with George W. Bush uh, of Republicans seeing problems like this. And if they can take the credit for it because they're in office, actually trying to do something to fix it. What I think is in some ways a bigger problem here is I don't think Republicans have the first idea of how to fix it. And not because they don't have ideas. It's not what I'm uh, I'm saying here. It's because they have painted themselves so deeply into a corner with the way they have opposed Obamacare, with the complete like all purposes, everything about it is a disaster. That a lot of things that used to be Republican mechanisms on health insurance are now quite toxic for them, and their their range of motion is very limited. So I think that even if they wanted to solve the problem, it would be very unclear to them how to solve the problem without seeming to fundamentally break faith 
with the arguments they've been making, often quite opportunistically against Obamacare. I mean, something about what's happening in the marketplaces that I do want to point out, because I think it's important. This is actually, in a grand sweep of ideological history sort of way, a much bigger problem for conservatives than liberals. The marketplaces for liberals were a compromise away from the thing they wanted, which was single payer, the big public option, Medicare for all, expansions of Medicaid. Liberals, in a sort of an untouched way, can now say, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders had become president. He'd be able to say, see, I I told you so. Like, Medicaid works fine. Medicare works fine. You try to get in bed with private insurers, and this is what you get. Almost all the major Republican health care proposals right now are based on exporting some version of the markets to some government health program. So if you look at the Ryan budget, what they are trying to do is make Medicare into Obamacare marketplaces. Uh, people have talked about that. Alice Rivlin, who worked with Paul Ryan on his proposals, has been very clear about this. Like they're creating exchanges. They are trying to put private insurers on those exchanges. Those private insurers get paid in large part out of subsidies. They are regulated to take everybody. I mean, it is all the same stuff. And the big theory that Republicans had about how do you transition the the big government programs over to private competition is getting shredded right now. It's getting shredded inside Obamacare. So in a direct way, it's seen as much more of a problem for liberals who care about this program. But in terms of where do you go from here, people who care about healthcare have a much better argument right now for saying, hey, look, you don't want to be in this position where the government is on its knees to some insurer trying to get them to Arizona. You don't want to be in this position where Aetna is trying to twist the government's arm to allow a Humana merger. Whereas Republicans are going to say what? That the exchanges are a great idea, just poorly adopted in Obamacare, but we're going to bring this to Medicare and it'll work great. Don't worry. There's a real issue, I think, with Republicans in terms of what healthcare ideas remain on the table for them for when they do need to solve some healthcare problems. And I don't think it's anywhere near being figured out. It raises the question in 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 America, in a utopian version of America, right? Like Trump loses, Hillary's president, House Republicans still have a majority, and there is some kind of That's like, your utopia? <laughs> you got to think bigger, yeah. man. No, 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 no. And then there is some kind of like fever breaks moment and conservatives come to the table and they're like, you know what? We actually do want to make health insurance marketplaces work because we have this vision of making Medicare less statist. So- If you will help us transition Medicare into a private insurance-based framework, we will help you do the fixes that you think you need to make the Affordable Care Act work, right? And then you could start to see movement on this. But one thing you were saying about how it makes liberals look good, this is another challenge to making the Affordable Care Act work better, is that at this point in the politics, if Democrats sweep to some surprising total victory and then Hillary Clinton turns around to House Democrats and is like, here is my package of Affordable Care Act fixes where we're going to like make the individual mandate more stringent and we're going to um, tighten up the open enrollment criteria, but blah, 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 blah. Liberals are going to throw a fit. They're going to say, no, 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 (laughs) right? Like we compromised away our public option and like these guys just came around and they screwed us just like we've always said. We need a political revolution. We need Medicare for all. Um, And when they say that, there still aren't going to be the votes among moderate Democrats for like ending the health insurance industry, (laughs) right? And you're going to be in total paralysis. It really is, I think, like only Republicans – 
deciding that they want to make this work because they want to transition away from the big government health insurance Mm -hmm. programs that like creates a a politics in which you can fix this. And I think if you look at like, well, what can make a private market and insurance work? Because we do have a few examples like Switzerland, Switzerland and Germany rely on private insurance companies. Maybe the Netherlands. They do too. Netherlands as well. Um, but all of them just have incredibly like regulated systems. Like I was mentioning earlier, it's pretty much impossible to avoid buying insurance. Um, they make it very, very hard for anyone to skirt their mandates. They have really regulated um, benefit packages where everyone is offering the same benefits at the same price for the same thing. The only international examples we have of universal coverage with private insurance are those that like really have a very heavy hand of regulation. And I think like you know you're both saying this is a bit of a hard challenge for Republicans to confront when you look at, you know, okay, how do you make a private market and insurance work? You know, all the international evidence suggests you just like put in a shit ton of regulations and like that's how you're going to force insurers in and you're going to force all the people in and like you can build an insurance system when you have the insurance companies and the people. And my guess is that approach is like not going to be very appealing to Republicans. I don't even know if it'd be appealing to liberals to be told, you know, you have to buy this private insurance or else we can garnish your wages or throw you in jail, that that anything would be very, um, you know, something that Bernie Sanders would say, that's absurd. Why do I have to give money to this private company or go to jail? And, you know, if there's conservatives listening who have ideas, I'd love to hear about them. But it's I have trouble seeing the evidence for, you know, how how do you fix this marketplace without more government regulation? So for for a research paper this week, I wanted to once again turn to our friends at the National Bureau of Economic uh, Research um, and look at the effect of population aging on economic growth, the labor force, and productivity. Tell me more. Yeah. Um, So the effect is— That is a viral headline right there if I've ever heard one. The effect is bad. (laughs) (laughs) That's a better headline. America is getting older, and it means everything will be terrible. Um, So— it's sort of well-known. America is getting older, and that means everything will be terrible actually is a good headline. Yes, exactly. Um, I think uh, NBER out there, um, if you want any headline <laughs> consults, um, you should maybe maybe consider talking to us. Um, so it's sort of well-known that the age structure of the population matters to the economy. That, like, If you look at like Japan's GDP over the past 10 years, like it's terrible – and then some like smart, you know, explainer website and or Paul Krugman will be like, <laughs> but you have to look at the fact that like Japan's population is actually shrinking as well as getting a bajillion times older. So if you look at their GDP per like working age person, like it is in fact going up. Um, and it's just that Japan as a society is dying off, not that their economy isn't growing. Um, so don't worry, Japan. <laughs> Well, do so, worry, definitely. No, no, no. So, so, so you may or may not worry about that, but but <laughs> what worry. you are worrying about there is like the crude mathematics of it, right? That if you have fewer people and or all your people are in retirement homes, they're obviously not outworking. Um, two people from the Rand Corporation and one from the uh, Harvard uh, Medical School, they looked at internal variation in aging in the United States and the implications for the economy. And what they found is that places where um, the share of senior citizens is rising, grew slower than than places where it isn't, um, which you would expect. But they found that the magnitude of the slowdown was a lot bigger 
than you might expect just from the sheer numbers of people. That only a third of the slowdown is attributable to fewer workers and two-thirds of it is attributable to the workers being less productive. Oh, right. so that's quite bad. Yes. So it implies that the news is is worse than you might think. So, so, that, that America, as, that as the United States ages, it's not just that our labor force won't be growing, but that the labor force will actually be becoming somehow like less innovative and you can sort of imagine it right if you if you just think like really in like lazy like non-expert terms just like a country full of old people is going to be like maybe not that dynamic not that creative it's going to be full of like cranky people well, let's who are put creativity away like some number of jobs require moving around and you just move around slower you can get less out of those jobs. Yeah, right. I mean you're you're not as good at you're not as good at working, you're not like learning new stuff, you're not as healthy maybe. Um and, and so they're saying they're just like top line conclusion is that uh, economic growth forecasts for the United States are probably too optimistic that we are taking into account the fact that our labor force will be getting slower, but we're not taking into account the fact that it will be like older and worse. Immigration. Uh, is so, so taking our jobs. The, <laughs> so there's a real bugaboo here of mine, which is you just talked about birth rates for a little while and you talked about the age structure of countries. And there's a way in which the birth rate dimension of a country's age structure is very intuitive to people. Mm -hmm. Folks recognize that it is an economic problem for Japan that nobody has children anymore. They recognize that it is an economic problem for Europe that their birth rates are down. And they recognize that it's been an economic boon for America that our birth rates have been relatively higher than uh, peer countries. All of that, somehow people totally grok. And then you talk about immigration, which is like – from an economic perspective, the thing that having a child does is it creates a worker. What immigration does is it creates a worker. It's actually quite similar. And to the taking your jobs point, an immigrant worker is less substitutable for your labor than a new native born worker because they may not speak the same language, have the same cultural understandings, etc. But there is some very strange disconnect where people will look at something like this and they will understand intuitively that it is bad for the economy, that our age structure and birth rates are such that our workforce is going to age. But that doesn't translate then into what is an obvious solution that America is sort of unusually able to implement, which is, well, let's just import a bunch of young workers. It's not actually that hard of a problem. And you could do it in all kinds of ways. I mean, you could say only young workers who can buy a $200,000 house in an area that needs, you know, that, that has a high foreclosure rate. I mean, there's all kinds of things you can do. But this is not some inevitable problem. We are really, really – we are really lucky to be a country where people desperately want to come here when they are young, when they want to work, when they are, are doing their best work. Once they come here, we know they start, they start businesses at higher rates. They commit crime at lower rates. I mean there's all this evidence that it's good and then you hear stuff like this and, and people just – we don't have any discourse in this country right now about increasing immigration in a real way despite the fact that it is an obvious – obvious necessity given what's happening to our economy. And the problem is only – it seems like everything suggests the problem is only going to get worse when you look at fertility rates where we've seen there was this decline in you know, fertility rates. I think they recently peaked around like the early 2000s. They started declining in the recession and they haven't – there was an expectation they would pick back up at some point that – but we keep hitting like new lows 
infertility rates. Um, some of that is good news. Like some of that is a huge decline in unplanned pregnancies, huge decline in teen pregnancies. So there's like some reasons to be very happy that people are having less babies. It suggests they're having more planned babies at a later stage in life when they're better able to care for them. But it doesn't seem like I think a few years ago there was this expectation that the fertility rate would pick up as you know the economy recovered. And you haven't really seen that. Um, and I think it goes back to the fact we're getting better contraceptives, once again, like a good thing. But it, it suggests that this problem is like not one that we'll be able to deal with, like through demographics changing at some point and people like being like, oh, I have the financial stability to have kids now. I think as people like have more control over their own, you know, reproduction that you're just going to see less less babies but there's, fun, there's also real, quick, real quick fun fact if you decompose america's fertility rate and you ask why do we have more fertility than europe it is largely because immigrants come here and have more children but but i mean also there, there's there's interlinkages between these issues right so like one occupation um in which the labor force is largely foreign born is child care um one major reason that people are using fertility technologies to limit the number of children they're having is that the cost of childcare has skyrocketed enormously. Um, another problem, I mean, that's like a denominator issue, but then the numerator is like, well, how much income do you have? It's hard for people to have income growth when the economy itself is growing very slowly. <laughs> um, it's hard, but we're also seeing that population aging makes it difficult for the economy to grow rapidly, right? So there's a there's a risk in my mind, right? If you look at Japan, in Japan, you have a country where there's like almost no immigration, right? They Even by, by European standards, incredibly tight immigration policies, um, incredibly low fertility rates and a nexus between the two. Like you can't hire a foreign born nanny because there are no immigrants. There are also no immigrants having children because previous cohorts have not had children. Like you can't get your siblings and your aunts and uncles to help you take care of kids or even like encourage you. Um, and there's a, you know, something that that I have certainly have found as a, as a relatively new parent is that the number of other parents in your community, like is itself a variable and like the viability of, of having kids, right? And so when the country sort of uh, maneuvers itself onto like a new low equilibrium where like you don't have people, there's no affordability of childcare, um, people don't want to have children. There is then like less constituency politically for policies that would be supportive to families and then also just like less socially sort of capital around it um, and then less income growth. So people have less ability to afford to do what they want. And then given all that, it's, of course, good for people to have, like, autonomy and control over their lives and whether or not they have children, right? But it sets you onto a, a I think, a actually quite bleak trajectory that our politics mostly seems to me to be, like, doubling down on. And and then the linkages go in the other way because I, I do to, – to keep banging on my drum here <laughs> – if you had much more immigration, you would also have many more people having children right. because immigrants have higher um, fertility rates and that would run all this stuff in in, in reverse. I, I just I, the thing I really want to say about this, because I, I get very frustrated by this conversation, which is often treated as some kind of demographic inevitability. It is a choice America is making. And and it is not the case that the only way to make the other choice is to somehow get into like a handmaiden's tale, like dystopia, mm -hmm. where we force people to have kids. 
tons of young workers want to come to this country. They want to come to this country and start families and have children here and push for more family-friendly policy. Like you really could do something with this. One day I want to have a, a, a weeds about the idea of just raising immigration rates because I, I do find there's this very strange and polarized discussion between immigration restrictionism, you know, build the wall, make Mexico pay for it. How do we deal with the un, unauthorized immigrant issues? And then there are some sort of folks way over there who are like open borders would be a great idea. And, and I think there are arguments for it. But you just never – in mainstream politics, it is nobody's view – that what we should just do is have three times the legal rate of immigration we currently do. That is the policy nobody has put forward. I asked Hillary Clinton about this when I interviewed her. You can listen to that interview on, on the weeds if you go into our archives. She did not answer that question. She was not interested in discussing whether having three times the number of, of immigrants would be good for this country. But it seems pretty clear to me that it would be. I agree. All right. All right. Here we go. Thank you, y'all, for listening in to another episode of The Weeds, a Vox.com and Panoply production. Thank you to our producer, Efim Shapiro. Thank you to my co-host on The Weeds. It is so fun to do it as a full group all again. Thank you to you, the listeners, who make this worth it, who fill our hearts with joy. Who review who make us. Who feel heard. Who review us on iTunes, iTunes. Who share The Weeds with their friends uh, through Facebook and Snapchat and Instant Messenger, maybe. Snapchat. AIM. Email, email is also good. G-chat. When people Spam. when people come to you and they say ASL, you should give them your age and then say you listen to the weeds. <laughs> or, or just discuss it in person. Say, hey, man, I just heard the most interesting thing on the great podcast, The Weeds. So do that, uh, and we will see you next week. Okay. It's a good episode. Yeah. Very weedsy. <laughs>